you may be seated this morning. Amen. Amen. As you are having a seat and as our band is coming down, you know, um, whenever it comes time for a message, usually we're like, hey, we want to see what the Lord is going to say to us. But uh, we operate under the conviction that the Lord doesn't wait to speak to us until his, you know, until the preacher gets up. But the Lord has already been speaking this morning. And so here's what I would encourage you all to do. Why don't you just bow your head right now and just maybe kind of. Listen, maybe the Lord's already spoken to you and you can talk to him a little bit about what he's already talking to you about. Maybe you just um, you, you want to hear him more clearly. Um, but uh, let's just spend a moment uh, before the Lord. Having already heard from him and responding to him. If you're still talking to God, don't let my uh, dialogue interrupt your conversation with him. Otherwise, join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the beautiful music we've been able to sing today. Sometimes, Lord, those words come out of us. Uh, they come from deep within us. It's as though we're singing from our bones. The depths of us. And sometimes, Lord, we find, we catch ourselves that we're not even really singing the song. We're just mouthing words. Uh, Lord, uh, we know you desire the song to come from our hearts. And so where we failed to sing from our hearts this morning, Lord, we call upon you to, uh, to embed, to embed your uh, praise. Think about uh, coming out fount. Tune our hearts, Lord. Uh, Lord, where we've sung from our hearts, we offer it to you. And we pray that it was a sweet-smelling savor. We pray, Lord, that it, it, it not only exalted you and brought you glory, but that, Lord, um, you delight in it. So, Lord, thank you for receiving our song. Uh, Lord, I do pray and I ask that you would be with us over the next few minutes. I pray that you would... Continue to move and to speak to us. Uh, your Lord, use me as a mouthpiece of a message of a word from you. 
Uh, fill me with uh, your spirit so that I can speak clearly, so that I can speak words of truth and wisdom and justice, Lord. Uh, the right things. Uh, Lord, uh, please help me so that I do not pervert, corrupt any truth, Lord. And then, Lord, I pray and I ask that as we receive what you have for us today, we would do so knowing that, Lord, this is just a little bit more that you've given up to us, a little bit more that you've given to us to eat, to nourish us, so that we can continue uh, being salt and light. And so, Lord, might we receive it as good nourishment. And might we receive it so that we will uh, intent, Lord, so that we will be intent on being salt and light today and the days hereafter. I pray these things, Lord, in Christ's mighty resurrected name. Amen. Um, I grew up in Friendswood. Uh, I went to, uh, we moved here whenever I was in kindergarten, halfway through my kindergarten year, actually. And so um, I was in Friendswood ISD from, uh, from the middle of kindergarten year all the way through the time that I was a senior. And there was one other time whenever for one semester I was over in Clear Creek ISD. But outside of that, uh, I, I grew up uh, in, in the same school district. I, that means that I grew up uh, with uh, the same kids uh, most of the time growing up, right? Uh, we either had classes together, we played sports together, and if we weren't in class, in, in, in like our, our, our core class together, we would see each other in PE and recess and, and, and points in between. And, and so um, when you grow up, uh, and of course, friends are small as it is right now, but whenever I was growing up, it was even much smaller. And so the community was a lot tighter, if you will. And you, you, you knew people and you knew, you knew a lot about people. And even if you didn't know somebody personally, you knew of them and, and you kind of knew of their personality a little bit. And so what happens is uh, I went to college and then I ended up coming back to Friendswood and establishing my life here. And that's what a lot of people do who are from Friendswood. And so, um, so I have, I've, I've, I've have my kids now and I am, uh, they're in Friendswood schools and, uh, and they're playing sports uh, at Renwick um, uh, Ballpark and at uh, the Friendswood Junior High, places where I played sports growing up. And, and now they're playing with people who I grew up with in high school and in elementary school. Now they're playing with their children in sports. Now they're, they're sitting in class alongside their children. So what that allows me to do is reconnect with a bunch of people that I went to uh, high school with. And, and some people who I barely knew in high school have become like some of my dearest friends today. And it's kind of, it's kind of crazy to see how these things uh, begin to take shape. And, and, and one thing that always kind of uh, strikes me is is whenever you have somebody pegged, maybe from how you've known them before, you, ha you have them pegged, like you know who they are, you know their character, you know their personality, and, um, and, and, and we all do this, we all make judgments, we all make assessments of people, but, but, but one thing that always strikes me is I can be so certain about some people sometimes, and I know who they are, I know how they are, and what I've found is as I've been reacquainted with people over these last several years of living in Friendswood and our kids getting connected and, and we getting reconnected is I am often surprised to find somebody who I knew in high school who was so much this way is no longer that way. 
or somebody who, oh, I, I know who they are, and then you find, I don't know them at all. I'm surprised they've changed, maybe. Maybe they never changed. Maybe I just had a wrong assessment. But whatever it is, it's, it's my, my, either, either they've actually gone through transformation or what I know of them has changed. And it always kind of knocks me a little bit for a loop. Uh, just to give some examples, I mean, I know some like very artsy, creative um, types of people who were, you know, into, uh, who had nothing to do with God, who had uh, a lot to do with, uh, you know, uh, uh, lascivious ways of life i'll just put it that way and now today they are walking lockstep with our lord i also know some kids who who if if you would have um what you knew about them in school especially high school uh later on in high school um you would know uh some of these kids were really heavily involved either in their church or in young life and they were always about you know, walking with the Lord, and uh, you get a few years out of high school, and these people who've never, who were straight edge, <laughs> are now dabbling into things, and, um, and, and, and these people who trusted God deeply, um, they now have little to no walk with him. And I'm always surprised by these things, and I kind of go, what, what, what happened and sometimes when we look at people, we know something big, dramatic happened in somebody's life. We always like those stories, don't we? We like the dramatic stories where somebody like, like we like the story of Paul on the road to Damascus. And one day I, I, was, I, was, I, was heading, I was heading to Damascus with papers in hand to apprehend some of the followers of the way of Jesus. Whenever a bright light just overtook me, sent me down to my knees, and a voice began to begin to speak and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? We like those stories. Everybody liked the story of my father. My father had a dramatic conversion experience. Uh, my father, who was a, uh, uh, he, he would have claimed to be an alcoholic by the age of 12, was using hard drugs by, you know, uh, eighth and ninth grade, ended up uh, using uh, heroin, experimenting with LSD. Heroin was his drug of choice. Uh, my father had been arrested. Uh, he had gone home with a gun in hand uh, because he, he felt like he had messed up his life so horribly that there was no turning from this point. And over a wild weekend where he was locked in his bedroom and he's contemplating ending his life, there was this war going on. And my dad would, uh, would testify that he felt like the enemy was telling him, you've, got, you've, you've made a mess out of your life. There's no turning back you might as well just go ahead and end things here. But there was this persistent voice of God. This persistent voice of God, which was calling to him, telling him that he loved him, rebuking and rejecting and, and, and fighting against the enemy's words. Now, because that was my dad's testimony, my dad got to 
he got invited to go speak at youth conferences and what people wanted him to do was, hey, you tell your conversion story. But you know what my dad always feared? He feared two things. He said, for one, I'm afraid that if this becomes such a story, people will, they will just play fast and loose, just trusting at some point God's going to bring me back. So it would give them a license to go and, and live that wild life. But then the other thing that my dad was always a little concerned of is his story is not everybody's story. Not every conversion, not every transformation requires or involves or includes these cataclysmic moments. Right? We don't ever read another conversion like Saul's in all of Scripture. It's unique. It's peculiar. And, 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 and what we should also understand is this. Is it's for a pretty big purpose. Right? The story is not just like, hey, Joe Blow was, was doing this and, and God came and, and shook up his life. And, and then he just kind of kept on doing things as he normally did. Just a few tweaks to his character and his personality. It's like Paul was being used for like some, 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 some major purposes in the, in the big story of God's salvation history. And as I said a few weeks ago, what you find with Paul is not only did he understand uh, that his story um, was, was special, but he also understood the uniqueness of it and the peculiarity of it. And Paul never, never writes to Christians, to disciples of Jesus and the churches that he helped establish. Paul never writes to them and says, uh, if you really want to see things going on, then you're looking for bright lights in the sky and Jesus' Jesus's voice uh, billowing out of that bright light. Paul never says, hey, you know what I do? As I've forsaken my home and I've forsaken my place of comfort and I'm traveling all over the Roman Empire, you go do the same. In fact, when you open up the text, like Ephesians, and you find that Paul is speaking to disciples of Jesus and he's telling them how to live as disciples of Jesus, everything that he says is, is really, if you really think about it, Everything he says seems to be kind of plain and ordinary. Hey, be patient with other people. Have you worked in a job long enough to where you know that you need some patience for some of your coworkers? Or are you the one who your coworkers have to be patient with? Right? We're all one of those two people, right? You're either the one who is, who is bearing patiently with others or others are having to bear patiently with you. If you want to know if you're the one who people have to bear patiently with, come see me after church. I will gladly, I'll gladly set the record straight. I'm just joking. And I am really just joking because y'all bear patiently with me more often than not. Well, be patient with people. Give them a little bit of time to come around. Don't just yell at them whenever they get things wrong. Whoa, Paul, this is radical stuff you're telling. It's not. It's pretty downright ordinary, and it makes perfect sense. 
So, some people we know, they change because life has happened, some dramatic things have happened in life. But, but I would say those are unique, peculiar stories. Most of us, what we find out is that transformation, transformation doesn't happen like with big moments and then big decisions and big actions. But transformation takes time. It's, it happens bit by bit. The reason why I bring this up today is because we're going to look at a story of a guy who, um, who has a surprising transformation in Scripture. In fact, if you are just reading through the story that, 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 that I'm going to let you in on in just a minute, if you're reading through the story, once you come to the end of the story and you come to this, this guy's the, the speech that he gives at the end of the story, you are going, that's not the same person. It's not the same person that I've seen all throughout the nation. You are completely and utterly shocked. And here's the deal. The story does not center or focus on this guy. He is a character. He might be like a, he's not just a big character. I would say he's, he has a bigger role. Like he, 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 he's not like he, he might even be like a second or third lead. But, but it, the story does not focus on him. It is about somebody else. And anytime that we talk about the story, we, we, I'll mention the other guy's name in a minute, and y'all will go, yeah, it's his story. Well, we're not going to be talking about him. We're going to be talking about somebody else. But it surprises you. And in the text, you find, no, you find really no huge indicators of like what, what transformed this person. And so what you kind of have to conclude is that his transformation took place over a long time. Now, before we get into the story, here's something that I do want to let you in on. When we're reading this story of this individual, we're not talking about somebody who, who finally gets to a place to where now they can, they, they, can, they can be saved or they can be in covenant relationship with God. Or you know, it, This story is about an individual who's already in covenant relationship with God because of God saying, hey, I'm, I'm choosing your family to be in covenant relationship with. So he's already in covenant relationship with God. So this is not like a salvation story, if you will. But we could call this like a sanctification story. Y'all want to know what the story is, don't you? Well, just give me a minute. But the reason why I want us to do this is because we've been considering much in the mundane and after we kind of laid some groundwork for some conceptual realities, I mean, let's just think about this. This morning, you and I did not have to say, son, it's time to get up. God was at work this morning already without you doing anything or me doing anything. And God didn't say, hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to send this son up for all these people who are wise and righteous. All these people who are going to gather this morning and celebrate me with their congregation and their community of faith. They're going to get the son, but all those other ones aren't going to get the son. No, God, not only, uh, not only is he, has he been at work today already, even if you and I did not even acknowledge it or recognize it. But God also has been at work for everybody. He's not been going like, okay, 
So you, because you, yeah, I mean, you do good things. So you're going to get my mercy and you're going to get my grace and you're going to get, I'm going to do something good for you, but those others I'm not going to do anything for. No, God, God has been at work and he's been at work for every last one of us already today. He's not, he's not respected any of us. He's not been partial to any of us. And this is kind of important to the story too. We'll see in a few minutes. But here's the big deal is what we've been talking about is like this idea that, that, that often we are looking for these big, major, radical, daring, adventurous moments. We think, God, you need to be working like that. Some of us put that expectation on God. Thinking about that idea of an expectation, Ruth Boone sent me a, uh, a great quote yesterday. And this is kind of like, this is what we want to like challenge. This is, we don't want our heart to become this place. You know, when we expect God, like if God is going to be God, then, you know, this cancer has to be ridded. If God wants to be God, then, then, you know, we got to see big movements. Here's what she sent me. It says, every such expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. Now, let's just ask the question, have you ever been resentful of God? Now, I know you won't say it out loud here, and that's fine. Will you be honest with yourself before holy God? Every such expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. When we expect, we're soon going to resent it when we don't get what we think we deserve. So, what the gospel says is stop expecting. Entitlement is lethal for the soul. That doesn't mean that God doesn't do anything for us doesn't mean that God doesn't move, doesn't work. But it's a transformation from this place of expectation and entitlement to this understanding that everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. 100% pure gift. The reason any of us woke up this morning had very little to do with us and everything to do with God. I was listening to uh, Robert Farrar Kaplan. He's a um, former, uh, I, I believe, Episcopalian priest, theologian. Uh, somebody turned me on to his works uh, a couple years ago, and I've just really, really, really enjoyed so much of what I, I read from him. But um, I was listening to a, a sermon that he gave this morning on my way, on my drive-in, um, and uh, and he said, you know, he said, none of us uh, can do enough uh, to save our lives. Now think about this, not only theologically, but think about this practically. All the things that we do to protect our life, to save our life, health-wise, security-wise, not one of us, not one of us is going to be successful in that endeavor. 
It's all a gift. All 24 hours today are total gift. And so, the only real prayer is to say thank you. And to keep saying it. When our prayer is constantly thank you, and we know we deserve nothing, and everything, and that everything is a gift, we stop counting. Only when we stop counting and figuring out what we deserve will we move from the world of merit into the wonderful world of grace. And I love this. And in the world of grace, everything is free. So, we want to be people who say thank you. Thank you for this moment in which not a whole heck of a lot seemed to be going on. But let me ask you, how easy is that? Can I tell you pastorally, um, uh, some things I'm dealing with right now just as a pastor is, is, is I don't always look around uh, at, uh, at what we're doing as a ministry and see a lot of big, bold, daring, radical, courageous things going on. And that's a challenge to me. And I'm sure it's been a challenge to you too. And again, I can sit there and I can tell you all the things. We're not supposed to compare ourselves amongst ourselves, even as churches. But then, you know, I see church down the street doing some pretty cool things. And I feel like a mom flipping through Instagram and seeing the other mom who does all the crafts with their kids. And I'm not doing all the crafts with my kids. I'm sharing this with y'all, not only just to share it with y'all, I will tell y'all, I need y'all's prayer in this. Because I don't want to get tripped up. Because here's what I know, is we can go chase the big, the, 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 the lavish, the, 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 the radical. We can go do that just so we feel better about ourselves doing something. And in the process, Lose trusting that God is always at work. So, last week we said, hey, one thing that we need to do is we need to value the present. This present moment, this present time that we have right here. This gift of a moment that we have. We're not promised another one. We can't even live out the last one. We only have this one. And we looked to Joseph's story. And in Joseph's story, we, we kind of talked about this idea. And the very first time that I thought about God being at work in the mundane was Andy Stanley. And I, probably the only message I've ever listened to from Andy Stanley. And it planted a seed in my brain that has been there for like 13 or 15 years. Or, or well, actually, golly, it's probably been closer to 20 years. Can y'all believe I can have a memory that's 20 years old? I don't look like it, I know, but I do, I have one. So here, here it is, is he, 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 he said in Joseph's story, all we get is this word that says the Lord was with him and there's no action, there's, no, there's not a lot of stuff going on. There's these long periods of time where it's just God is with Joseph and we, 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 we trust it and we kind of see some fruit of it, but we don't know what that means. We don't know what God's doing, and it just seems kind of like, and he said, God's with him even in the mundane, and that was like so many years ago, and it stuck with me. 
But one of the things that we wanted to say is like Joseph couldn't be in Potiphar's house doing the work for Potiphar if he was trying to be anywhere else. He would not be doing a good job for Potiphar if he was not just committed to be present for Potiphar for the work there. This week, what we want to see is this. We want to see that there's not only value in being present, but there's value in us. Uh, there's value in the cumulative effects of little accomplishments. So what that means is there's value in building something from bit by bit. Piece by piece. There's value in your character being transformed, not in one fell swoop, possibly, but over, over the course of some time. Where we're going to get is ultimately this, is that there's value in you learning to be a generous person, to becoming the, the person who has a generous spirit, by little by little walking in the generosity that God has towards us, and little by little practicing the generosity that God calls us to practice. And over a period of time, that's transformative in your life. So without any further ado, what's the story? Well, I've already mentioned his name, Joseph. It's Joseph's story, but there's another character in Joseph's story. Did y'all know that there was another character in Joseph's story? The other character, his name starts with a J as well. Anybody want to uh, venture out and, uh, and, and be so brave to, uh, to mention a J name that uh, you might think might be the, 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 the focus of our attention today? What's that? Hey, my goodness, my brother... Sam. Sam got it. And listen, what he gets today is high praise. High praise, Sam. <laughs> Judah, there's a story alongside the story of Joseph, and it's the story of his brother Judah. Now, his brother Judah is a pretty despicable character. He's kind of actually diabolical. And somewhere along the way, and we are not clued into where this happens, why this happens, how this happens, there's the thunder. We are not clued into where this happens, why this happens, so what we can say is that it doesn't happen in a big dramatic moment, but it takes, it takes the course of time and it takes the course of this narrative. And one thing that you're going to see in Scripture is that God is awfully patient. And one thing that you should have, uh, I talked about this a little bit, a healthy kind of frustration with is the fact that God is patient. God understands that you have a healthy frustration with that. He knows that you want things to happen right now or yesterday. But God doesn't work the same way that you and I do. And so he's willing to walk with Judah, this 
this despicable, diabolical dude for a long time and to work on Judah for a long time until Judah's heart is finally changed and broken, vulnerable, open. So let me just key you in. I can't tell you the whole story. All I can tell you is in Joseph's story, you know that Joseph is... Uh, hated by his brothers because he's so deeply loved by his father. Not only that, Joseph does some things that probably are not the wisest thing to do. Joseph, who is the youngest of this patriarchal family, he says that he's going to be the one who takes up the mantle after his father. He's going to be the one who everybody bows down to, who everybody looks to. And so his brothers... They, 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 they have a natural kind of like jealousy and envy because they see their father loving him more. And they, honestly, they know that his father loves Joseph's mother more than, they love, than he loves their mother or their mothers, right? And so they, they know that like their mother is kind of just a contractual agreement, whereas, whereas Rachel is the love of Jacob's life. And they can sense that there's just this whole thing. And then Joseph has to come in and go, hey guys, don't worry about it. Not only does my father love my mother more than he loves your mother, not only does my father love me more than he loves y'all, one day y'all are all gonna bow down to me. And we are not surprised whenever his brothers begin to get envious and hateful towards him. But they make this plot and they make this plan. They say, hey, we're going to kill him. And then we'll throw him into a pit. And then one of the brothers says, hey, don't kill him. And we'll have to cover up. And he says, just throw him into the pit. And he's thinking, this is Brother Reuben. He's thinking, man, I'll just go and I'll, I'll sneak him out of the pit later and I'll take him home. And we'll forget all about this business. But while he was in the pit, Brother Judah sees something. He sees a caravan of Ishmaelite traders, and he devises a plan. And the plan is this, and it's in uh, Genesis, I'm going to, yeah, uh, it's in Genesis chapter number 37. If y'all just give me one second, I should be able to control this thing. And if I can't, I don't care. All right, here we go. All right. Judah devises his plan. He said unto his brethren, what profit? Well, there it goes. Judah said unto his brethren, what profit is it if we, if we kill our brother and we conceal his blood? Or if we kill him, we have to conceal his blood. He says, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him. Let's make some money off of him. For he is our brother and our flesh. And that's a weird statement. Like, what's he saying? Like, hey, let's not kill him because he's our brother, but let's make money off of him. Like, it just sounds like there's this corrupt, diabolical, despicable nature to everything that he's saying. And whenever he says this, he leads his brothers into this, into this crime where they profit off of their own brother's flesh. They're all content. You can see it there again, a different, or in the next passage, it says, then they're passed by the Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and they lift up Joseph out of the pit. They sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. They brought Joseph into Egypt. 
So this story that we're telling is the surprising transformation of this young man. This man, Judah. And it's a transformation that you never see coming. Let me show you something else about Judah. So Genesis 37 tells about how they hated Joseph. It introduces Joseph. It tells how they hated Joseph, how they sold him into slavery. And then Genesis 38 takes a detour, and now it tells us a little bit about Judah. And um, because, uh, because of the sake of the nature of the fact that we have uh, a, a wide variety of ages here, I'm not going to tell the whole story that happens in chapter 38. I'm going to let you uh, read that. And parents, you can read that to your children on your own uh, time. But uh, what we know about this story is a couple of things. Uh, Judah has some sons. His first son marries this girl, Tamar. And before they could have children, his son dies. And so that his son could have an heir, his other son is going to marry Tamar and have a child with her. But before he could have a child with her, he dies. And so then Judah says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you home to your dad's house and you just play the role of a widow. Don't go get remarried. Just trust me. I'm a good guy. You can trust me. I'm going to send my youngest son for you. And the text tells us he had no intention of doing this. In Genesis chapter number 44, verses 18. Oh, no, that's way ahead. That's not where I'm supposed to be at. Genesis 38, verse 11. Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. He says, uh, he says, lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now, if you are reading the King James Version, you go, okay, she, he just told her, to, he sent her away so that she could wait until the son became of age uh, and he didn't want anything bad to happen to the son before that happened. But that's not how this is actually intended to be translated. How this is actually intended to be translated is more like this. Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house Till Shelah, my son, grows up because he was afraid. I'm so frustrated with this thing. Because he was afraid that he would die like his brothers. So what we should understand from this is that Judah sends Tamar away, never intending for her to marry Shelah because he thought, man, there's something wrong with this girl. My sons keep dying. I'm not going to give her another one of my sons. So what I want us to see here is this is kind of a despicable, diabolical dude. Not a lot of saving grace that we see in Judah. Uh, the story continues in a very, very troubling direction. Again, Judah is not a very good dude. But turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter number 44. In Genesis chapter number 44, we have this amazing speech from Judah. And if you know the story, Joseph has, uh, he has risen to uh, the second in command, if you will, over Egypt. Um, his brothers come back, they bow before him. And instead of saying, hey, it's me, your brother Joseph, 
Joseph puts them through a series of tests. Um, this is not to be mean or nasty, I don't believe. Um, I believe this is uh, uh, an act of wisdom. Uh, Joseph is trying to see, hey, he's trying to understand where they're coming from. He wants to see, like, hey, can they be trusted to know my identity at this point, right? Um, uh, he ultimately, he wants to know about his father and he wants to know about his younger brother, Benjamin. And so in the process of everything, what he does is he sets up this, this tricky test and um, he says that Benjamin, uh, he, he plants a silver cup in Benjamin's bag and he says, whoever has the silver cup in my bag, they have to stay and be my slave and all the other brothers can go home. Well, uh, come to find out that Benjamin had the silver cup in his bag. And instead of all the brothers going home, they all rip their clothes in grief. And then they all go back with Benjamin to Joseph. And there before Joseph, none other than Judah becomes the spokesperson for the group. And Judah begins to speak. Now I'm going to read from the NLT uh, this morning, and hopefully it will stay up on the screen. But it's, we'll begin in Genesis 44, uh, verses 18 through 34 is where we're going to look at. And it says, uh, Then Judah stepped forward and said, Please, my Lord, let your servant just say one, more, one word to you. Please do not be angry with me, even though you are as powerful as Pharaoh himself. He said, My Lord... Previously, you asked us, your servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we responded, yes, my Lord. We have a father who is an old man, and his youngest son is a child of his old age. His full brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him very much. And you said to us, bring him here so I can see him with my own eyes. But we said to you, my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for his father would die. But you told us, unless your youngest brother comes with you, you will never see my face again. So we returned to your servant, our father, and told him what you had said. Later, when he said, go back again and buy us more food, we replied, we cannot go unless you let our youngest brother go with us. We'll never get to see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then my father said to us, as you know, my wife had two sons and one of them went away and never returned. Doubtless, he was torn to pieces by some wild animal. I have never seen him since. Now, if you take his brother away from me and any harm comes to him, you will send his grieving, you'll send this grieving white haired man to his grave. And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for, grieve, for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of that boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. 
quite a transformation that took place. And between that, between him saying, let's sell our brother. And then the next story that we see of him, where he is saying, he's being devious towards his daughter-in-law Tamar in multiple ways. Between those stories, we have nothing else other than finally he shows up to get some grain. And through a series of tests that we see, his true colors now have come out and he is a different individual. The only, the only two things that we can absolutely hint at looking at are at the end of Genesis chapter number 37. At the end of Genesis chapter number 37, after they tell his father, after they, they make up this lie, then they tell their father, hey, guess what? We found his clothes and there's blood on it. So you just, you just tell us what happened, you know? And so his father just assumes some wild animal came and killed my son and tore him apart and you found his clothes. And his father is so broken and so uh, undone. Then Genesis chapter number 37, at the end of Genesis chapter 37, here's what it says. Uh, it says that uh, uh, when he saw his son's coat Jacob rent his clothes he put sackcloth upon his loins he mourned for his son for many days and all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him but he refused to be comforted and he said for I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning I will live every last day grieved over my son who's died Thus his father wept for him, and the Midianites uh, sold him into slavery. Okay. Judah had to live with his father who was grieved. And here's what's interesting about the story. Why does that first moment of seeing their father not get one of them to say, Oh, okay, dad, here's, here's the deal. Not one of them speaks up and reveals that this whole, this whole thing is a farce. You, you know, if they would have spoken up, so many things would have been so different about this story, but not one of them speaks up. But here's what they do. They live with their father day in, day out, grieved over Joseph. I imagine that while it didn't happen in that first moment, that began to weigh on Judah. And here's the deal. We would like for Jacob to rent his clothes and for that to be the moment where Judah goes, oh, daddy, we got to tell you what happened really not right now. And we expect that's what's going to happen all the time. Something big's going to happen. It's going to change somebody. But you know what? Judah has to see his grieved father every day and every day. He has to harden his heart against the softness that's trying to burst through. And God is patient enough to go, all right, keep looking at your daddy. What does Judah say at the end? We can't, we, we will kill this guy if we do. We've lived with this long enough. He's been grieved this whole time. This will actually kill him. It's like that first moment, that big moment of his ripping his clothes and falling down in sackcloth and ashes and saying, my son, 
my son, my precious son. That had no bearing on Judah. Judah was able to steel himself against that. But after moment of moment and time and time and year and year of seeing his father grieved and now coming to this reality that he might lose his other son, Judah is finally broken. So I contend to you that God is patient. And that God isn't going, we're going to get this all whipped up right now. But that God is going, hey, bit by bit. And this is not only important because we want to have the right expectations of God and we, we, we want to be good boys and girls, but this is really important so that we can understand that the gospel works this way in this world, that the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, the good news that Jesus is Lord is not something that comes in in one fell swoop. And I've said that so many times today. You have to do this. You have to do this. This is just a stupid moment. You have to go look at... Um, not Mike Berbuglia, Nate Bergatsky. He's a wonderful comedian and he has a whole bit on one fell swoop. You go look it up and then you will laugh, I promise you. But um, if you don't do it, you won't laugh and you'll miss it. Um, otherwise, y'all just have to know every single time I say one fell swoop, I keep thinking of Dave Bergatsky. So I had to let y'all in on the joke that I have going on in my brain right now. But here's the deal. The kingdom, the good news that Jesus is Lord it, It is at work right now. The kingdom is at work right now. And you go, but I want it to look more like the kingdom. And God goes, yeah, I wanted Judah to look a lot more like my son Jesus. I wanted him to look a lot more like his brother Joseph, but I was patient with Judah. And in all those moments that you didn't see anything transformed in Judah's life, I was all the while working. So to the parent who has prayed for your child for years and years and years, and you are growing resentful of God because you have an expectation and maybe even a little bit of an entitlement because after all, I'm the one praying to you. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. <laughs> to the child praying for their parent. Don't lose heart. You don't see a whole lot going on, but I promise you there's so much going on. There's so much that God is doing and he's able to do. But you and I, we get so, we, we want the flash. We want the pizzazz. Just like the people wanted Jesus' miracles. They wanted, they wanted more 5,000 people plus being fed miraculously. And Jesus said, stop it. Stop it. You want to make me king because I could fill your bellies? Oh my goodness. We are so easily, we are so easily won over, aren't we? And here's the thing. Not only do, do we have to understand this, 
on this end that the kingdom is here, it's coming, and we need to trust it, and we need to just continue to, to, to accept that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. You can't hardly see it, and you bury it in the ground, and, 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 and you don't even get to see the process, but you know one day it's going to start bearing fruit. We need to... We need to understand that if people were easily won by bread that Jesus multiplied in front of their very eyes, they will be easily swayed. And not genuinely swayed, but easily swayed by all of the big stuff that we can do. And you and I are creative enough, we're talented enough, we're bright enough, we're, we're ingenuitive enough that we can, we can do some pretty cool things and then get a lot of people to show up, a lot of people to say a prayer. Not because they accept Jesus and his kingdom that sometimes doesn't even look like it's at hand even though he says it's at hand. But they wanted the goodies. And you and I should know, we should know that's a precious thing that we're holding on to. Because we can give people the goodies without giving them the real kingdom. Now, here's the other thing. I know that y'all don't just think about like what God's doing for y'all, but what we have to do for others, but, but also who you're being shaped and formed to be because you are striving to be disciples. You are striving to follow Jesus. And one thing I think about this is we talk about, like our paradigm is always like the fruit of the spirit or, or love as Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 13. Like these are, these are kind of like the ways that you can uh, unpack, hey, what does it, like what kind of character traits, what kind of virtues should we have? We should be peaceful, patient, kind, generous, temperate, meek people, right? This is, this is what God desires of us. This is what he wants of us. But something that struck me this week is, is or, or, or I've thought about this for a long time, but something that really hit me this week is two things. First of all is this, is for one, you don't just go, today I'm going to walk in the spirit, and you are fully walking like in, in peace and patience and kindness. You have to, you have to begin to walk in peace and patience and kindness, and you have to, you, 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 you take some wobbly steps a little bit whenever you're trying to walk in the spirit, you know, but, but, but the more that you keep trusting that you can keep walking in the spirit, that you, you build up your strength, you build up your legs and your energy and your vitality to be a kind, a genuinely kind person, but, but where it all starts whenever I think about this is not what we do to walk in the spirit where it all starts is us walking in this idea that that is what God that's how God sees us when God sees us he sees us with eyes of peace when God sees us he is patient towards us when God sees us he's kind towards us when God sees us he is long-suffering and he's forbearing when God sees us he is temperate towards us 
And so what I would encourage us to do is instead of us thinking about all the things that we can do is we begin to say that prayer of thank you, not just for this moment that is a gift. Thank you for your kindness towards me, God. God, I know right now I'm not doing anything that makes you, that makes, I'm just sitting here, I'm just being. And you're not going, I need you to be doing more. You're going, I love you with an everlasting love. I know that even whenever I do things that you hate, you are patient towards me and your mercy is fresh on hand. And so what I would encourage us with is this. We need to value that we're going to be transformed bit by bit, not in one fell swoop. But to do that, we have to walk in this idea that right now in the mundane, God loves you. And you are enough. And he's not saying, hey, I need you to be doing some more so I can do something for you. His first word towards you is, you see that I made the sun come up? Breathe that in. I'm working. I'm working for you. I'm working on you. I'm working with you. I'm working through you. And it doesn't always look like much, but there is much in the mundane. And with that, I say, amen. Will you join me in praying? Lord, I love you. I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story of this, this young man who's transformed, Lord, um, Outside of that moment of seeing his father broken and seeing the, his father broken for many days, Lord, the only other thing that I see that could have, could have done anything to, 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 to rattle his cage is whenever he saw Tamar and he said, she is more righteous than I. But God, here's the deal. What I trust is that all along the way, you were at work. You were speaking, you were moving, you were, and through little moments, Lord, through, uh, through, 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 through little revelations, you were trying to open up his heart, open up his eyes, trying to transform him, draw him towards softness and <laughs> confession and repentance, Lord. And, and so, Lord, I see that in him and I trust that it's at work in me and us as well. I see you as patient, as long-suffering, as forbearing. I'm thankful for who you are. I pray that you'd be with us as we uh, spend a few moments reflecting, uh, Lord, on this message. Uh, and Lord, just seeking what, what, what specifically, generally and or specifically, you have spoken to us, Lord. Meet with us, Lord, I pray. Or continue to meet with us, I pray in Christ's name.